This morning we're continuing on, on message number four in our Sinners and Saints series, and we're definitely landing on the sinner side of the Sinners and Saints this morning. And this is a bit of a difficult message to talk about um, Tamar, and uh, Tamar who is the daughter of David and who has the half-brothers Amnon and Absalom, and who Amnon uh, basically treats beyond despicably, and... Um, commits violence against her. And so this is a difficult sermon, but it's a sermon that we intentionally need to do in an appropriate way on Sunday morning. A, because in our uh, You Asked For It series, you asked for it. Um, I got this name more than once. And it's a topic that we have to deal with openly for the very reason that this is a topic that largely is kept in the shadows. And it's not kept in the shadows in Scripture. And so because it's in Scripture, we teach and we respond to the whole counsel of God, not just the parts we like. And unless you've been living under a rock or completely devoid of social media in the last couple of years, you're well aware of the powerful hashtag MeToo movement. And, excuse me, its effect on ending the silence around and exposing the prevalence of unwanted harassment and abuse in our culture. So there's the Me Too movement, there's Time's Up, there's After Me Too, and all these other campaigns. They're not perfect, they're not spotlessly righteous by any means in their method or execution, but they are addressing a sensitive and a messy and ugly topic, and there's a certain amount of messiness to be expected in any process that tries to address this topic. But the goal of the movement of Me Too and its aims of ending silence and removing shame from victims and exposing violence are good aims. And what we've seen over the last several months playing out on social media and playing out in the courtrooms is the exposure of perpetrators of violence and harassment from the world of Hollywood and from the world of business. So Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Jeffrey Epstein, Louis C.K., Cosby, all of these different names and personalities. The movement has put names and faces to easily forgettable statistics, and they're scary statistics. We know that one in three women and one in five men have experienced physical or emotional abuse. And just a statistic is kind of forgettable, but when there are names assigned to statistics, they become unforgettable. And of course, we know with statistics like those that there is not a family among us present today that is not impacted. And so I know that each of you have a very personal name or a very personal experience that you attach to that statistic. It's not just a statistic for you. And what we also know is that it's not just those depraved Hollywood producers and those greedy businessmen who fall victim to this kind of sin that turns into violence. The sad reality is is that churches and denominations and church members and church leaders are in the news as well. Everything from the Catholic Church to Sovereign Grace to Willow Creek, uh, there are people in our churches that are falling victim to the same problem. And so it has to be addressed. It has to be brought out of the darkness and into the open. Churches and Christian families are as full of broken and sinful people as the world is and even more broken. And so if this is a cultural movement in our society right now, we are not immune. If the world finally finds itself holding itself to a moral standard and calling evil evil, then as the church, we should be holding ourselves to at least as high, if not a higher standard of accountability and compassion. 
We must work even harder to create a church that is not simply safe, but holy and compassionate and pure. And so to do that, we have to look at scriptures like this today. We have to look at women like Tamar. And 2 Samuel 13 is our text today. It's the whole chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm not going to cover the whole story. But just to remind you, it is the story of Tamar, a daughter of King David, and her half-brother Amnon, who desires her, who takes her, for, takes her by force for himself, who ultimately hates her, and the vengeance that is then done upon him by another brother of hers. And even perhaps more importantly, and what we're going to focus on today, the sort of systemic and institutionalized silence that resulted in terms of the inaction of King David, who just did not want to deal with this, as angry as he was about it, the royal palace, the royal family, the institution of the government of Israel basically just covered this up and did not deal with it. And that's exactly what the Me Too movement is about. The Bible is not unaware that this evil is possible within us, within God's people. 3,000 years before social media and hashtags, we have in 2 Samuel 13 a brutal revelation of abuse at the highest levels of culture. It's actually God, through his prophets and scribes, who basically hashtags Amnon and Jonadab and David, and he exposes them and their sin to the whole nation of Israel. And he preserves this in his word for our instruction. So it's a difficult conversation. It's a difficult topic, but it's a topic that God wants us to talk about and to be aware of. Because God refuses to hide Tamar away, even to protect his royal line. King David is in the line of Jesus, and God is not going to cover up the flaws in even his royal line. He will not be silenced on this issue or be silenced for Tamar. The Bible refuses to participate in institutionalized silence. It refuses to whitewash leadership or powerful people, even within God's own kingdom. It's interesting that this is one of the, the many arguments and evidences that the Bible is far from a carefully crafted religious narrative that powerful elites put together in order to forward their own agenda in terms of having a religion that gives them honor and respect. If you were a Pharisee or scribe or prophet that was cr- trying to contrive a religious text that made you look good, Second Samuel 13 is the last chapter that you would ever write or ever include because there is nothing positive about the leadership of Israel or the people of God in this text. And so we have to look at it. The Bible confronts this head on. Long before Me Too came along, God said, I'm going to expose this. And you need to learn from what I am showing you in my word. Now there's four key people, and we're going to look at them as we go through the account in parts, uh, the fourth key people and how we learn or what it reveals about this particular topic. And I understand that this is a difficult topic for people and it may land on you, excuse me, very personally. And so if you need to get up and just get a coffee at some point, uh, I understand that. Don't worry about it. Um, you know, we are here to care for you, but this is a topic that we have to address and not keep uh, behind closed doors but I will try to deal with it as appropriately as I can on a Sunday morning. So Amnon is the first person, Amnon and his friend Jonadab. And this is a warning to anyone who is toying with this kind of sin. Amnon embodies 
the problem that we will tackle of violence that leads to harm and lust. He's, Amnon is essentially deceived and he's in bondage to sin and in bondage to his flesh. He's overcome with a desire for his half-sister Tamar. Second Samuel 13 says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and after a time Amnon, David's son, loved her, and Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. He was just sick with lust for her. But he had a friend whose name was Jonadab, son of Shimei, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very crafty man. And so Amnon feeds this sense of selfish entitlement that he has through his so-called friends, Jonadab, who says later on, Oh, son of a king, why are you so sad? In other words, Amnon, you are a prince. You should have whatever you want. Why are you a prince in the kingdom of Israel, not happy? Whatever you want, you should simply take. And Amnon must love having this guy around because he is the perfect echo chamber to hear back from him exactly what he wants to hear. He just reflects back to Amnon what he desires. So Amnon surrounds himself with people who rationalize what he wants and agree that he should have it. And by the way, that's how all marketing and how Facebook works. If you find yourself agreeing with everything you see in social media, it's because there are algorithms behind there that know what you like and feed back to you the things that you like. So you are simply reinforced in things you already believe. And that's not a healthy way to live. And it's not a healthy way to have friends. You should have friends who are challenging you when you are gone sideways and you are off the rails. Amnon didn't need another Jonadab. He needed a friend who could confront him. But this is the situation. Amnon has this fantasy in his mind And this crafty man uh, conspires with Amnon to trap Tamar. There's literally a conspiracy that takes place here. They actually set up a plan where Amnon's going to pretend he's sick and he is going to get Tamar to come to him and um, feed him and create an unsafe situation. And in their conspiracy, they actually implicate other people, namely King David. It's Amnon asks David to send Tamar to him, and David complies. And so now he is now complicit in this violence that is done unbeknownst to him. And this is where these situations get messy. And the Bible is clear that this is going to get messy. It's not just a bad man and a bad friend who conspire. They also now implicate other people within the system and within the family without them really realizing that they are going to become complicated into this. And so... David's first involvement is innocent, not really complicit, but it will become complicit later on, we will see, as King David becomes implicitly complicit in the silence that that unfolds. And so these things are difficult to untangle. If we think about what's going on in Hollywood, we think about what's going on in business, we think about what's going on in churches and denominations, what things might have happened in churches that you've been at before, It's hard to sort out who is guilty and who isn't. Who knew what, when did they know it, what should they have said when. And so we will see that this becomes messy. It's not always black and white. But Amnon takes this fantasy and he's beginning to make it a reality. And instead of just imagining himself with this woman, he puts him and Tamar together in a compromised circumstances, sending the servants away, being alone in his bedroom, putting him and her in a vulnerable situation and fully compromised now, he acts on his impulses even against the protests of Tamar. In 13, 11 to 16 we read, 
But when she brought them near, that's the food that she made, near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. So the violence is done. Tamar is ruined. And in the end, Amnon is still unsatisfied. In fact, he's resentful. He actually hates Tamar now more than he thought he loved her. It says in verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So this man Amnon had objectified Tamar. She was not really loved. She was simply a means to an end, and even the end itself was a destructive lie. It was never love, because love would never express itself in violence like this. This is lust. And so the presenting issue from Amnon is clear. Powerful men conspiring to do violence in response to uncontrolled and selfish passion and a woman suffering harm, shame, and recrimination as a result. This is what God has laid out for us in 2 Samuel 13. This is the situation that Amnon has created. Now we look at Tamar. I call her the brave and the beautiful. She conducts herself with integrity throughout. We learn that she is lovely. She's lovely in three ways. Tamar is lovely in form. It says that she is a beautiful sister. She is lovely in temperament. She obeys her father David to go to Amnon when she's asked to go and care for her sick half-brother, and she wants to help Amnon in his apparent sickness. She's graciously willing and compassionate to help him. And she's also lovely in spirit. When we see her response to Amnon's advances, she says, such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this outrageous thing. Tamar cares about morality. She cares about Israel. She cares about the family name. She cares about what is right. She has principles, and she wants to stand by those principles, but Amnon doesn't care. There's nothing about Tamar's beauty that makes any of what happened her fault. She is, in this account, portrayed as innocent in every regard. We should see here that there's nothing that lays any blame on Tamar. It's not the victim's fault that they are the object of violence. She's brave, and she's beautiful, but she's also vulnerable. The text says that he was stronger than she And this is most often the case. Abuse is most prevalent when there is a power differential. Physical power, yes, that's obvious, but also social power, economic power, even emotional power. So there was a power imbalance and there was a privacy imbalance and she was put into this vulnerable situation. And we can also note here that it was someone she knew. It was a family member. It was her half-brother. And we often end up in these imbalances of power and in these vulnerable situations because we know the person. The person we should trust ends up not being trustworthy. And then we also see that she is also betrayed by those in authority and those that were aware of the situation who should have acted on her behalf. She has a father, David. He's actually the best possible father to have. He's by far the most powerful man in Israel. He's the king. But he did nothing. He was told about it. He knew about it. He was even angry about it. But his anger was impotent. 
And maybe it was the very fact that Amnon had cleverly implicated him in this scheme that paralyzes David. He's thinking, I'm the one who sent her over to Amnon's house. I'm the one who set this up. He's filled with shame and guilt, even as he's angry about what happened. But regardless of that, there is no excuse for his silence or his lack of action as a father and as the king of the royal palace and the nation of Israel. So from Tamar's perspective, she's not only harmed, but also betrayed. And from her perspective, the perpetrator is protected by silence. She ends up living in her brother Absalom's household for two whole years going by, and none of this ever comes up. She never meets with her father. He never talks about it, never brings anybody forward on this. So two years goes by, and this woman just thinks this is swept under the carpet. This is forgotten. I'm ruined. Everybody else goes on with their life. No hope of restoration. But there is one ray of hope here, actually, in the story. We look at the third person, Absalom. And this is the surprise of this account, that Absalom is the worker of at least some righteousness and some justice. And we don't usually have much good to say about Absalom, but let's look at how he reacts to his sister Tamar. In 2 Samuel 13, 20 to 22, it says, And her brother, Absalom, says to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. And so Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. And now this is a bit of a mixed bag of a text. You might at first say, I don't see the compassion here at all. It's an imperfect response, as I said at the beginning, to an ugly situation, and we're not given the full details. On the one hand, Absalom at least comes to her. He at least makes himself present to her and tries to offer some sort of comfort, but as we read his word, we know that it's the kind of comfort that is largely unhelpful. He says, don't take it to heart, sister, and anyone here can see that that is a fairly not helpful thing to say. Right? Okay, Absalom, I'll just not take it to heart that I've been violated by my half-brother. So Absalom, let's just say, is clearly not a man of words. But he is a man of action. And there's two things I want us to see here in the text that Absalom does do. The first thing is that he honors his sister and he nurtures her. He opens up his household to her, even though she would be the object of shame, even though she would be the object of scorn. He brings her into his household and protects her in his own home. Not only does he nurture her and comfort her, we also learn in chapter 14 that he honors her. Absalom has three sons and a daughter, and he names his own daughter Tamar. Now, in the family circle, the last name you would probably want to name your daughter is the namesake of Tamar, who is this object of scorn and rebuke and shame. But he names his daughter Tamar, and a clear sign of his love and his honoring of Tamar, his sister, who's been affected in this way. It's an affirmation that she is a treasured sister to Absalom. And then secondly, he takes action in ultimately avenging her and bringing justice. In 2 Samuel 13, at the end, we see that two years later, Absalom finally arranges a way and succeeds in getting Amnon alone and getting his men on his command to murder him. 
So taking the law into his own hands is perhaps not the right way to do this, but what we can see is that this unlawful vigilante justice came about as a result of broken and a failed institution. It's because the palace, it's because the royal court, it's because the royal family, because the authority of the king did not operate properly that Absalom finally took matters into his own hands and caused even more dysfunction and more damage within his family. And the lesson here, I think, is that the silence and the inaction and the cover-up and the fear that resulted institutionally, systemically within the palace created this dysfunction. There was failure around Amnon and around the situation and around Tamar to deal with it properly. And all of that falls on David. And he's the fourth name that we look at. David is the embodiment of proper authority, and he is the second big problem in this account. In 2 Samuel 13, 21, it says, When King David heard all of these things, he had the whole story reported. It says he was very angry, period. We never hear from him again. That was it. David was angry. He said nothing. He did not call for his daughter Tamar to come. He offered no comfort. He took no action. He executed no justice, even as the king, let alone a father. I mean, I wouldn't have to be the king to execute some justice on a guy who did this to my daughter. But if I was the father and the king, you can bet there would be some justice for this guy. But David does nothing. And it's interesting that as we look at the context of this story in 2 Samuel 13, we have to realize that this is David's household now after Bathsheba. After David's sin with Bathsheba, David is a shell of the man that he was before. As you read the account in Samuel, uh, there are no more great and glorious deeds for David after this. All of those heroic stories of David and his his success before the Lord, all took place before Bathsheba. After Bathsheba, David is forgiven. There is plenty of grace. There's plenty of forgiveness. But there are also no more historic and great and glorious deeds. David is literally a shell of the man that he was before. And his household is a shell of what it was before. It's become a shadow of what it was. And there's only a few years left for him as king. And what I take from that is that we can be certain that if in the household of God where great and glorious things are being done, if we allow sin and disobedience, excuse me, and violence and abuse to enter into our institutions, they will be judged just as David was judged. The psalmist speaks about this in relation to Israel and all that Israel allowed in their borders. In Psalm 99.8, it says, Our Lord, O Lord our God, you answered them, being Israel, You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. In other words, the psalmist is saying, God, you forgave Israel, you forgive the sinner, even as you avenge the sin that took place. In God, what we find is forgiveness and justice side by side. And this is what's going on in David's household. He's forgiven, but justice is coming to David. 2 Samuel 12, the prophet Nathan spoke this word from God to David just before this happened. He says, thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And so why would David be surprised that this is happening to him? That this is happening in his very royal family? Because God said, David, I forgive you. There's grace for you. 
but there's going to be judgment on your sin. And we take that to heart that even in the church, in denominations, in local churches, whatever you want to call it, within God's people, even though we are doing great and glorious deeds for God, if we were to permit this kind of sin, there would be judgment, even as there would be grace and forgiveness. So this happened to David as an example, and we have to be vigilant because it can happen in God-fearing houses. It can happen even in church, even among God's people. We must not be like David who knew the sin against Tamar. He was angry but silent and inactive. So there's the story and some of the lessons it teaches, and it doesn't pull any punches. And so what we should learn from this wisdom of Scripture that has openly addressed the reality of this sort of violence and institutionalized silence and impotence, 3,000 years before our Me Too movement came along, God said, I'm going to expose that this is the human heart, this is the kind of violence that can take place, this is the kind of institutionalized silence that can perpetrate it. I'm going to put it in my word, I'm going to make it visible so that you don't fall into this trap. And we don't need the Me Too movement to tell us that we need as a church to be dealing with this openly. So what is then our response to this? If the world is shocked and disgusted with violence of this sort, then Christians should be as well to an even greater degree. Christians more than anyone hate this sin, not only because of the violence that it does to the personhood of others, we hate it for all of that, but also for the additional violence that it does to the image of God that these people are made of and to the glory of God in the world. Christians of all people should be triply horrified by this sort of violence. If the world can comprehend the virtue of ending this sort of evil, then Christians must see the virtue of that all the more clearly. This sort of behavior is an affront to the holiness of God and to the value of human beings and to the purity of human relationships. It should hurt our heart as much as it hurts God's. And we must respond. And there's two ways I want to look at our response. Very quickly, first of all, our individual response as Christians. Christian men and women individual response is our commitment to do no harm and to help the harmed. We do not, as Christians, act out of selfish passion like Amnon did. We are controlled by the Spirit, not the flesh. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-4 says, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. That is the Christian life. We will individually commit to being self-controlled people who know how to conduct ourselves with honor with members of the opposite sex. And then secondly, individually, we then proactively take action to defend the defenseless. We are the appropriate means of God's mercy towards those who need mercy. Psalm 82, 3-4 says, Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is our job as Christians. We are called to defend the defenseless and to show mercy to those who need it and to rescue those that are in need of rescuing. That's our individual response. That's our, my challenge to you. And I think most of us know the right and wrong of abuse in terms of our individual actions. But the second thing I want to look at a little more closely this morning at is into the context of our scripture here in 2 Samuel is our institutional response. 
or even our family response. Because this takes place, as I've said, in the royal government of Israel and in the family of King David in the institution of the palace is where it was permitted to happen and permitted to perpetuate in silence. And what the Me Too movement and other movements have uncovered is that it's not just bad people doing harm in a vacuum. It has also exposed that institutions have been ill-equipped or unable to respond rightly and therefore implicate themselves by silence and inaction. And as a church, what this conversation this morning is about and what this message is about is that we have to respond to that institutionally. So this is our response as a church, to deal with the dual problem of invisibility and silence. How do we lift the veil of invisibility and stand with those who have been abused? And this message right now, Sunday morning, is part of how we lift that veil. But then also, how do we give voice to those who are not heard or who are silenced? So as our hearts align with God's heart in compassion for these victims of this kind of sin, our churches, more than anywhere else in the world, should hold the highest standards of transparency, of accountability, and safety. We have to learn from 2 Samuel 13. What Tamar endured need not be endured again. So what will we do? We will not protect perpetrators with silence. Rather, we will speak to the appropriate leaders and authorities as the situation requires. As was read earlier during our music time, Proverbs 31, 8 to 9 says this, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. That's pretty clear. When we know there's a problem, we are told to open our mouths and speak. Silence must not cover this evil. We will speak when we know. We will not delay, as David and Absalom did, or ignore or minimize and let it cause even more harm. Once you know something, you can't unknow it. Knowing something carries with it a duty to respond If we don't respond, we become morally and actually in our culture today legally complicit in the abuse. And so if you know, do not delay. Respond immediately. Rather, we will act immediately to inform the proper people and follow the proper protocols. Thirdly, we will not permit or in any way harbor amnons. At Lakeside, we remain vigilant and we actually have policies and practices in place that make it difficult for an Amnon situation to arrive or for an Amnon to dwell among us unknown. Rather, we will proactively protect those who might be harmed, not leaving anyone in a vulnerable situation or under the care of untested authority. This is why we have planned to protect. This is why we have volunteer checks. This is why we have police checks. This is why we have leadership and ministry training. All of these things are in place on purpose because we will not be a place that can harbor Amnons easily. We will make it Difficult, if not impossible, for them to do their harm in our midst. Fourthly, we heed the warning of the example of King David that we will never simply be grieved or angry, but otherwise impotent. Tamar rightly expected her father and her king to act for her. And at Lakeside, you should rightly expect that leadership and authority will act for you. 
You will never be alone in this. There will always be someone, whether it's staff or elders, some leadership will always be available to advocate for you. You are never alone should this, literally, God forbid, it ever happen at Lakeside. And in addition, God has given us the proper authority and appropriate methods of justice in order to deal immediately and correctly with abuse. Our church as an institution is not above the law, nor does it operate apart from the law. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so what I mean by that is that we will not as a church take the law into our own hands and say, Oh, we can deal with this without the police getting involved, or we can deal with this without the authorities getting involved. No, we are not above the law. If something illegal has happened, we will get the authorities involved properly. So we will not take matter of of law into our own hands. We will engage the proper authorities. Fifthly, we will care for victims of abuse as Absalom did. We will always be accessible for confidential conversation. We will always nurture and comfort those who are the victims of abuse. There will always, excuse me, be a place of safety and honor for them in the church. We will commit to those things. We do commit to those things. So if you're here today and you're saying, this is a hard message, this is a difficult topic, I agree with you, it is. It's hard. But God lifted the veil on this in Second Samuel for us so that we would lift the veil even here in our midst today so that nobody knows that they have to be like Tamar and forgotten for two years or 20 years. We will deal with it. We will not sweep anything under the carpet. This sermon is not the only conversation, nor is it the end of the conversation on this topic. It's just part of a larger conversation that takes place, as I said, in our leadership training and in Plan to Protect and in my office and with leaders and discipling people and and people in this church. This conversation is ongoing, but we want to expose it. We want to end the silence, and this is part of it. We look at the whole counsel of Scripture. We don't just preach the parts that are fun. So we will practice these things in our church, and we will extend this message of hope out beyond our church to the community and to our nation. We've recently taken on a new mission partner, Fight for Freedom. You can learn more about them at the mission board. It's covered up right now with Greek things, but you can learn about them. You can learn about Fight for Freedom that we now sponsor and we work with Fight for Freedom who's working with women who are coming out of uh, the trafficking, uh, the sex trade industry and, uh, and caught in trafficking. So we want to take this beyond just the walls of this church to our community and to our country. For the victim, for the perpetrator, for the church family, here's the bottom line. Everything we do points back to Christ and to the gospel. And here's the reality of the gospel in this situation. When this happens, we believe in a gospel that redeems and restores. Jesus went to the cross to set right what is wrong in our hearts and to set right what is wrong in the world. And so we believe in a gospel that is not powerless, but powerful, that by the Holy Spirit, we can overcome our sin and we can overcome being sinned against. The gospel is powerful to restore and to redeem and to heal. And what that means is that the gospel is powerful to restore and redeem and to heal relationships, the people who have been abused, and even the people who abuse. In this situation, we will always bring, in every situation, we bring the gospel to bear. And what the gospel says is that we are not without hope. 
That there is a power more powerful than the sin of this world or the sin in your heart. And that healing and restoration and redemption is possible when the gospel is applied. And that's what we believe and we will apply to every situation like this. So I thank the people, the two people that gave me this name. Because the silence had to end and the invisibility had to be lifted so that we could deal with this. And it's not an easy conversation to have on a Sunday morning. But this is a reality that God, long before Me Too came along, lifted the veil and ended the silence so that Tamar never had to happen again. And in some ways, this is how God is redeeming even what happened to Tamar. Now, for 3,000 years, men and women have seen what's happened in her life, and God has said, don't do this. Be better than King David. Be better than Amnon. Be better even than Absalom. This is what we're committed to at Lakeside Church. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't pull any punches. Even as we saw recently in our series on Job, you do not flinch away from the reality of human sin and human life. You do not flinch away from the reality of one in three women and one in five men. You do not whitewash even your own people and leadership in order to cover up sin. You drag it out into the light so that it can be healed. And so, Father, I pray if there is anyone here that needs something dragged out into the light so that it can be healed... I pray that you would just gently coax them in their hearts to come forward and that the leaders that they approach would be so gentle and so compassionate and so merciful. Father, that that we as a church would never, ever be complicit in silence over this. When we say we trust the gospel, this is what we trust that there is healing and there is hope and there is redemption, even in the darkest of situations. Father, you are so good and so merciful that you would give us scripture like this to challenge us and that you would give us your Holy Spirit that raises us up, up to the challenge to meet it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.